0: Uh, You know, I've recently become uh, sort of enamored with a concept that was first put to me uh, by a guy, a moral philosopher by the name of Jonathan Haidt uh, in his uh, book, The Righteous Mind, uh, where he says in the introduction of the book this, he says, an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he means that hanging over normal human experience is a desire to be justified, or, as uh, author David Zoll says, a desire to be enough. Here's how Zoll puts it. He says, You'll hear people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. And we believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value and vindication and love would suddenly be ours. If we got enough, we would be enough. But here's the wrinkle. One so well-worn it hardly bears mentioning. No matter how close we get or how much we achieve, we never quite arrive at enough. Hates goes on to say that the psychological term that's used for all this energy that we're expending in this direction is the word Justification. And he says, this is the key to unlocking the explanation of humanity. Want to get at the core of who you really are? You want to find out what really motivates you? Then follow the traces of your quest for righteousness. Zahn says this, he says, wherever you are the most tired, look closely. And you'll likely find self-justification at work. The drive to validate your existence, to assert your lovability. Via adherence to some standard of enoughness. <laughs> I love that. Look, there's a bit, lot of benefit to framing the conversation, framing humanity this way, not the least of which is it keeps Christian types like ourselves from panicking over what we see in the world around us that appears to be a great running away from Christianity. We think to ourselves, what do we have to say to this generation? And the answer, if what hate and Zahn are saying is true, is wherever you are looking to be enough, you're looking for righteousness. You're going to be right with the world around you. Christianity speaks directly to those things. Of course we are still relevant in today's world. And the key to unlocking that sense is to follow the objects of your enoughness. Food, romance, education, children, politics, technology, whatever. Things which, by the way, in and of themselves are not bad things, it's when we elevate them and lean them into making us enough that they become means to our own self-justification. That's the Bible's topic. The other benefit of framing our humanity in this way is it'll help you understand the contrast that's being drawn between Exodus chapter 20 and Hebrews chapter 12. Because what you have there in Exodus 20 is God's people standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, quaking in fear at what they're seeing. But in Hebrews chapter 12, you've got the same people of God who, according to the writer, are figuratively standing before Mount Zion. This is the holy city Jerusalem, which is a metaphor for the new humanity that God is creating in the church. So the church... What you're doing here is what God sees as us approaching Mount Zion. And the contrast is dramatic between the two. But here's the linchpin. You're going to know which mountain you stand before in the way you understand the role of the law. What we've been looking at this entire fall. That's how you know. And by laws, I don't just mean the Ten Commandments, but I even mean those little l laws that we set up to bring about our own self-justification. Writer of of, uh, Amazing Grace, John Newton, once said, Ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most religious mistakes. In other words, if you don't get this right, you're going to miss the whole linchpin of what God is doing in the world. In other words, if you want to relate to the Ten Commandments and you don't understand it as something that is not a quest to be enough, you haven't even started with Christianity. So we got to do some work this morning on the nature and Christian understanding of the law under three headings. I want to look, first of all, at terror and the law. Secondly, lawyers and the law. Lawyers don't get nervous. That's not what you think. And finally, you and the law. Okay, Let's let's dive into this. First of all, terror and the law. Did you notice that? That in Hebrews 12, it said very clearly that these people were standing before Mount uh, Mount Sinai, terrified. And so what you have is, in in, in Exodus 18, is this camera kind of slowly moving down from the mountaintop to the people below, and here's what they're doing. Okay. Uh, Actually, Moses, why don't you talk to that God? We're not interested anymore. He says, now when the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood far off. Yeah, I'll bet. (laughs) In other words, what they began to see is they began to see terror because of how they saw themselves in the law. They saw themselves. By the way, each of those images that they see on Sinai, those end up becoming biblical themes of judgment, like throughout the whole of the Old and New Testaments. Fire, smoke, thunder, lightning, blasting trumpets. It'll help you unlock a lot of the book of Revelation. That's another sermon for another time. But think about this for a second. Is there anything more natural than to recoil at something that deeply intimidates you? You know, you're a child and you reach up and touch the hot plate that your parents told you not to touch. And instinctively, your hand pulls away from it instantaneously. Well, that physical reaction is a great metaphor, isn't it? For what happens morally when we see holiness for the first time? When a sinful creature sees holiness for the first time, they jerk back because they know they don't measure up. It's cosmic intimidation that we experience when we first get the holiness of God. We're undone by it. So there's a sense in which the law sort of brings us that. But I think also these Israelites were backing up because they suddenly realized just what this God was requiring, which is total allegiance. In other words, these people just discovered that God is going to make claim over every nook and cranny of their existence. It's almost like from the first time of their Egyptian captivity, they realize this God is not just playing. Following him is for keeps. And what they realize is, is that this God that has freed them is terrifying in his holiness. Now look, is there a concept which is more disgusting socially in our day than the idea that God might be intimidating and terrorizing and might scare people. How dare we even suggest that in our job? But bear with me for a second. Is it really graceless that God revealing his holiness as a dangerous thing is a bad thing? Let's take an example. Let's say that your three-year-old has learned to run. And around the house, you just celebrated her when she was able to do it. Hooray! Until she darted out and ran out in the street in front of your house or outside the front door at Walmart into the dangerous parking lot. Suddenly, you begin to think to yourself, we have to bring some law down here. And we punish, of course. We have a little lecture from mommy and daddy about why our rules are important. So here's my question. Is it graceless to bring the law and its punishment upon my children so that maybe the next time they think twice before they race out in the street? Well, of course it's not graceless. Why? Because the laws that we have for her are tied up intimately with the reality of her existence. Does that make sense? In other words, to break laws, our laws, goes against your best interest for yourself. But in your three-year-old mind, you can't see it. That's not graceless. So then we come to God and we see his laws and we see, why is he being so strict And it's as if God in the Bible is trying to say, look, please, I am not just some cranky deity who's arbitrarily throwing out platitudes to to shame people into, you know, meek submission or something like that. No, my laws, (laughs) because I am holy, are tied up with the realities of your existence. But you can't see that right now because your sin has made you blind to it. You don't have a good grasp on it, just like a three-year-old. Okay, now do you see now the contrast between Sinai and Zion in the two passages. The two mountains, as it turns out, are kind of related, aren't they? Because Hebrews is suggesting that you really don't get to Mount Zion until you've gone through Mount Sinai. That's the path. We have to sort of experience what we see in Sinai in order to get to Zion, which I think is going to help you in a million different ways, not the least of which. (laughs) We'll let you know if you've met the real biblical God yet. I think I can put this starkly. Like you'll know that you've met this God when you want to get away from him. How about that? <laughs> when I want to get away from him, you probably have the right God. Because the reason why we don't have a good grasp on our situation is because of our rebellion. That we're masking. We're filtering it out. We're keeping it from coming home. And not only that, but it's keeping us from saying goodbye to our old self-destructive ways. So there is a role that terror plays as we begin to think about the law, its intimidating factor. That's important. Has the law of God disturbed you? Secondly, though, I want to look not only at terror and the law, but also lawyers and the law. You know, the, the reaction of the people is almost a little comic there in verse 19. Uh, no, no, no. You speak to us, Moses, and we'll listen. We don't want to hear from God because it'll kill us. But you know, in that very moment, they get a glimpse, don't they? And we know better, having looked at from the New Testament back, that they get a little glimpse of just how God is going to save his people. Because aren't they doing what any person who suddenly realizes that they're up against the face of inevitability itself would do? Which is they start asking for a (laughs) go-between. When you're pinned down and flailing and grasping at straws, is there anything more natural to do than to look for somebody to save you? A go-between. So in other words, Mount Sinai already contains these hints that more than anything else, we need a mediator. Or for our purposes, we need a good lawyer. That's what we need. (laughs) But here's the deal. It can't be some crackpot lawyer, right? It's got to be someone who is skilled, and I would say skilled in at least two ways. And Moses is a great example. The first thing they have to do is a lawyer has to be skilled at explaining the law to you, right? Moses says in verse twenty, "Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning." Okay, what does he mean there? Well, Moses says the purpose of the law is to test you, and don't let that throw you off. Most of us, when we think about test, think about the fact of what a teacher does. A teacher tests you so that she can find out what is inside of you. But God already knows what's inside of you. When God tests, he's actually trying to let you know what's inside of you. He tests in that particular way to see actually so that he knows. God already knows that we're not worthy. But he needs for us to own that and to grasp that. And what that does is, importantly, is that test begins to set them up to frame, as it were, the nature of the obedience that he's going to require of them, which is going to be different from what they did in Egypt. In other words, these lessons are for their benefit, because until you begin to see the kind of obedience I'm going to ask for, you're going to continue to think that I'm just like those Egyptian gods. and I'm not. And so my law is here to intimidate you into that. But look, this is the message of the... Uh, this is what we end up finding. If, if, you, if you talk to a lawyer for enough time, you'll find that you never really can know how they're going to turn out because of their relationship to the judge. You know, the truth of the matter is, the best lawyers can really only guess how the mood or the temperament of a judge is going to affect things. But Hebrews is inviting us to entertain a thought. In Hebrews 12, it's like the writer is saying, hey, but what if the judge and your lawyer are the same person. What if they're the same person? (laughs) Now you can see that when there's a go-between and the lawyer and the judge are the same person, you've got someone who can know the mind of the judge the way no one else could. Look at verse 23 in Hebrews 12. He says, We have come to God, the judge at all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Because here's the deal. A good lawyer will not only explain the law to you, but a good lawyer will explain you to the judge. Will they not? And so it says there in verse twenty-four that we have Jesus, the mediator. That's a word for lawyer. You can just put the word lawyer above that of a new covenant, a new contract, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better uh, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What in the world is the deal about the blood of Abel? Well, to a Jewish person, when Cain killed Abel, that guilt of that blood screamed over the rest of humanity. All humanity lived under a death sentence because of the blood of Abel. But the writer is saying is, guess what? But we've got a lawyer who actually took care of that. How? Hold that thought. But the point that he's saying is, is my lawyer comes in having dealt with the blood of Abel. is now, In other words, he's a lawyer who has a case. I like that phraseology because you could realize what would happen with someone who was a lawyer who realized that he doesn't have a case. You ever thought about that? Sometimes if a lawyer wakes up and realizes he doesn't really have a leg to stand on, he's got to get creative, right? I don't know, maybe I could pay off the jury. Uh, Maybe I'll use fancy words to confuse everybody. You know, Maybe I'll find a loophole in the system somewhere, right? And it's occurred to me, and I've, I've mentioned this before in sermons past, how often do Christians think of their relationship to God in that way? That Jesus is our mediator. Everybody knows that, right? Jesus represents us to God. But let me ask you a question what is that conversation like? Cause I think what oftentimes happens is we imagine Jesus up in heaven to his father being like, uh, your honor, father, I'm here to represent my client, Les Newsome. And, um, yeah, he did it again. But look, I know, I know we've been here a thousand times before, but if there's any way that you could please, please, please pretty, pretty, please let him off just this one more time for my sake. God, is that how the conversation between Jesus and God goes in your mind? But look, what Hebrews 12 is saying is, is Jesus is a perfect high priest, meaning he's a lawyer with a case. So what does that sound like? What Jesus is saying to his father is, father, look, let's lay out the facts. The facts are that you are perfectly holy. And here's the deal. You require in your law for people who treat one another like Les Newsom does, that the judgment for that is death well, okay, here's my hands, here's my feet, here's my side. Now, Father, don't you see that if my life is given for that debt, it would be wrong for you, Father, to exact two payments for one debt. It would be unjust for God to do that. So now the very justice that was there to condemn us because of what Jesus did now speaks in my favor. It's on my side. Look, we are are dancing around and unpacking something that the theologians call justification by grace through faith. A doctrine that if you want to spend any amount of time on, dig deep on that one. Because in my opinion, there's no way to survive a study through the Ten Commandments without that doctrine. Because what it's saying is simply this. At the cross, there was a holy exchange Jesus gives his righteousness to his people, while his people give their unrighteousness to him. That's the great trade. That's the transaction that happened. But because of that transaction, God looks down and instead of seeing us, he sees his son and he says, Not guilty. But he doesn't say that because of wishful thinking. He doesn't say that because he, you know, wink, 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 you're not really a sinner. That's the lawyer who's trying to sort of jury rig. He doesn't have a case if he's doing that. He does have a case. Because now justice is on our side. Because God allows substitutes. The hymn writer says, let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. That's what they were talking about. Look, here's the point. Moses was just a pointer. But in that moment, those people in that dreadful scene, they were looking for Jesus. They were looking for a mediator. Look, so throughout the ages, I think Christians have seen this as a really helpful template for understanding their own lives. Hey, think about this for a second. Have you been through probably repeated seasons of your life where God graciously allowed you, to see yourself through his eyes. It was not a pleasant experience, was it? In other words, he tested you. You go back to these things where you're like, he just kind of released the guards for a little bit and let me kind of wander into what I would be into every day if it weren't for his grace. But here's my question. Here's what Hebrews 12 is asking you. What did you do, though, with that terror? What lawyer did you consult in that moment? Because if in those days you were there spending all your time shopping at the marketplace of enoughness, my guess is, is that it's disappointed you over and over and over again, and that any of the joy and elation and delight from Hebrews 12 doesn't describe you at all. Why? Because you're trying to justify yourself. And the thing that unnerves me is for religious people like us who come to church, don't you realize that things like church going and, 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 and reading my Bible diligently and, and new efforts in prayer, all wonderful things in themselves. But when we begin to use them deployed in a spirit of self-justification, they do just the opposite than they were supposed to do. They're not born of grace. We're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, still hustling for our own worthiness. Who is your lawyer this morning? Terror in the law, lawyers in the law. Finally, the question is of you in the law. Look, you talk about the law enough and you get to a point as a Christian where you think, what is the possible usefulness of this? Uh, Well, my dear friend uh, who's a pastor down in uh, Kosciuszko, Philip Palmer Tree, when I was in seminary, sort of did a Bible lesson for some junior high people that I have never forgotten. Because he said, look, there are four images that every Christian ought to be aware of in their understanding of the usefulness of the law. Let me give you these four images. Number one is a portrait. He says the law is a portrait. And who is in that picture? God himself. The Ten Commandments are God revealing what he is like, what he looks like. Secondly, the law is also a map. The law, because it comes and sort of abides by the contours of of our humanity, shows us exactly where to go. Christians get really bound up of like, what does God want me to do? Decision-making in the will of God. How do I figure it out? Well, you ready? Here it is in the Ten Commandments. And if it's not directly represented there, guess what? You've got the freedom to follow your conscience and to do your best. Free yourself up in realizing that the law is a map. Thirdly, the law is a mirror, is it not? It's a mirror held up to you so that you can see yourself It's the manufacturer's design for yourself. And so therefore, it's going to come and let you know what you are really like. Which again, may not be a pleasant experience, but I might need that. Fourthly and finally, the fourth image he gives is that the law is an x-ray machine. An x-ray machine is interesting, isn't it? Because an x-ray machine can show you what's wrong, but it can't actually fix it, can it? He said, that's a perfect image for the law. The law can reveal what's wrong, but it can't begin to put you back together again, which is kind of counterintuitive because when you read through the 10 commandments, you're like, I thought that was the purpose of the 10 commandments was to transform these people. How to put it in our terms this morning, does justification by grace through faith change me? How does it make me into what God wants me to be? If it's not going to be through the law, that's a great question. And in answering it, I want to tell a story that's an old preacher story about a British man uh, who retired and did what he had been dreaming of doing all of his life, and that is that he purchased a Rolls-Royce. And he was going to go and tour all over Western Europe and see the sights over a couple of months. It's going to be a big trip for him. So he loads up this beautiful brand-new car on a ferry. Uh, He docks in France, and he begins his journey. Well, like about a week into his journey the car breaks down on the side of the road in a small little village. Well, in frustration, of course, he calls up the dealership and is like, the car broke down. And the voice on the other end of the line assured him that all he needed to do was find a place to stay in the night in the village and that someone would be there right away for help. So the next day, a man from Rolls Royce arrives at his broken down car. The man could hardly believe that the guy was there at all, much less that he was there as fast as he was. But of course, he started to work and the car was quickly fixed and there were reassurances that were given and the guy left. Well, so the man said that throughout the rest of his tour, as much as he enjoyed doing what he'd always dreamed of doing, he still had this little suspicion in the back of his mind. Man, how much is that repair going to cost me? I mean, they shipped the guy all the way across the channel to come and help me. Can't wait to pay for that one. But when his holiday was over, he got back to his home and he realized it's time to pay the piper. So he wrote a letter to him saying, look, I'm just wanting to know exactly how much that repair is going to cost me. A couple days later, he received a letter from the Rolls Royce office that had one sentence on it. It began, dear sir, we have no record anywhere in our files of anything that ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. Now look, that illustration works on a couple levels, doesn't it? Here's the first one. Have you ever thought about like, how often can I describe my life as being on a tour that God has laid out, but that I can't really enjoy and I can't really take joy in? You want to know why? Because there's a suspicion in my head that there's a bill to be paid. It may be nice now, but one day I got mine coming And when I stand before God, that's not going to be a good thing. So not only do we fear death itself, but we fear the sting of death, which is the idea that what awaits me there is judgment. Isn't that fascinating? And because we do, we never get the joy, the transformational joy from realizing that what Jesus did was he gave us the Rolls Royce of salvation. It's as good as it can possibly get. Justification by grace through faith. Because in that declaration, what he has done is he has made my relationship to the law secure. It's secure, regardless of what I do, regardless of the mistakes I make, regardless of the umpteenth time that I come on Sunday mornings and I pull out the responsive reading and we're like, I'm here again. And he says, yes, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have no record of Les Newsom's idiocy here at Rolls-Royce. Isn't that the point? And that maybe somewhere in the midst of that joy, we begin to realize, now I know what it means to stand at the foot of Mount Sinai versus standing at the foot of Mount Zion. Because I know that I'm standing at the foot of Mount Sinai when I look at my life and I realize that it's nothing more than a hustling for my worthiness, like Brene Brown says. For me trying to find my enoughness. But I know I'm standing in front of Mount Zion. When because of the blood of the Lamb, I can say, as James Proctor said, I have cast my deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. I stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. That's Mount Zion. That's what the Hebrews writer is talking about. Look, the law will never stop tormenting you. (laughs) Dear soul. It will never stop tormenting you until you realize that Jesus did two things. Yes, he kept the law perfectly, but he also received the curse of the law on the cross so that when it comes down to it, he absorbed all of it and by his resurrection offers all his people life in him. I want to finish with this one little stanza from a poem that I just love. It says, run, 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 the law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we are asking for those wings this morning, that joy that only comes from knowing that you have placed us above the law and yet still in good stead with the law because of the cross. Father, we stand, we love, and we sing, and we wonder amazed at how you have sacrificed for your people. This fall, Father, has been a burden. It's been a weight because we see ourselves undone by your holiness. But we do ask that you would send us to the cross. That Father, as we look in this little manger during this season, we would see our redemption being won for us and that we would walk away from here transformed because indeed you've paid it all. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name.